Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? See a lot of visitors with us that may be wondering what in the world was that. Uh, our theme this year is all in, and so we're starting each uh, sermon with asking the question, are you all in, just as a reminder that we, we should be, that there is no other option when it comes to discipleship. If you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, you might remember the book, A Scandal in Bohemia. If you haven't read the book, I won't bore you with the details. Uh, if you haven't read the book and you plan to, I'm probably going to spoil it for you. So there is this woman who had a picture of herself with the king of Bohemia, and if anyone found out about this picture, it would certainly cause a scandal. The woman's name was Irene Adler in the book, and Sherlock Holmes, to try to get to the bottom of everything, decides to come up with a plan. He tells Watson to throw a smoke bomb through the window of her home, and that would create this idea that there was a fire. People would shout fire and begin fleeing, and she uh, would run into the house and tried to rescue the picture from the fire because it was something that she treasured and thought was so valuable to her. And that prompted Sherlock to say these words, When a woman thinks that her house is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing which she values most. And that's all of us, isn't it? All of us rush to the thing that we value the most. Irene Adler's most prized possession was a picture of her with the king of Bohemia, and that treasure was directly linked to her safety and her reputation. Keep that thought in mind as we move through our series on the Sermon on the Mount by looking at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Here's what we read. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A major question that permeates the entire Sermon on the Mount is this, where is your heart? And a second question directly related to the first question is this, where is your treasure? These two questions go hand in hand because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You sacrifice for your treasure. You cling to it. You follow it. You fight for it. You can't live without it. But it's a dumb investment. And do you know why? Because it all stays here. You haven't seen a hearse with a luggage rack for good reason. Because it all stays here. Your money gets spent by someone else. Your stuff gets sold at a yard sale or on eBay or at an auction. And Jesus says, don't treasure what will not last. Don't treasure what you can't take with you. Don't be preoccupied with what stays here. And really, that's what the Sermon on the uh, Mount is all about. It's about your heart and where your heart follows, what your heart follows, where it goes. Because while it sits behind the breastbone, just slightly to the left, your heart is movable. It's mobile. It moves with you. It it's moves with your money. It moves with your possessions. Your heart follows your treasure. And the passage that we just read, Matthew 6, is about the heart and who or what has it. And when we talk about hearts and we talk about treasures, we're really talking about altars and worship. If you want to know what a person worships, just follow the trail. The trail of time and money and affection and energy, and loyalty, and at the end of that trail, you're going to find a throne, 
And whatever that person treasures will be seated on that throne. Whatever they value most in this world will be sitting on that throne. So when Jesus speaks of earthly treasures versus heavenly treasures, what he's really talking about is worship. Because here's the deal. Everybody has an altar. Everybody does. It's not just where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, because your life follows your treasure. So it's really where your treasure is, there your life will be also. There you will be also. You cling to your treasure. You fight for it. You sacrifice for it. You can't live without it. And Jesus says, quit treasuring that that will not last. Jesus is warning against a preoccupation with anything that can be destroyed. Everything that is being talked about in Matthew chapter 6 is directly related to people and their stuff or man and his relationship with his things. So Matthew chapter 6 starts out by talking about giving to the poor, which is a great litmus test for how much of a stranglehold your stuff has on your heart or your money has on you. And then he moves to the model prayer, as we call it. He gives his apostles an example of how to pray. And in that prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. But we don't want our daily bread. We want our yearly bread. We want our retirement bread. We want a couple of loaves sitting in the bank drawing interest. We don't want to have to worry about our bread or where it's coming from. But God wants dependency. That's the lesson he tried to teach the Israelites with the manna back in the Old Testament. And he's still trying to teach that lesson today. Rather than being self-sufficient, God wants us to depend on him. And that brings us to verses 25 through 34 of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about storing up treasures to acknowledging the temptation to do so. Money and stuff are an easy God for people. And Jesus recognized this, which is why he talked about money and possessions so often. And so here in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, he talks about worrying about these things because that's where you've placed your security and your trust. And he says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yeah, I, I don't get the impression here that Jesus is, is being rude or harsh to his audience. I think he recognizes their worry and their concern, and he says to them, don't worry. And that seems pretty simple, but it really is that simple. Don't worry, and the reason why is because God's going to take care of you. God's going to clothe you. God's going to feed you. You're going to be okay, because is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, don't get so caught up in the earthly that you ignore the heavenly. Food and clothing may seem like a big deal, they may seem like the big issues and pressing issues of life, but Jesus says God's going to take care of you so you don't have to worry. You're going to get your daily bread, so focus on what matters most, being a Christ follower. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, first things first. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Put God first and let it affect everything else in your life. Quit bringing your sacrifice to the altar of worry. Incline your heart to seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Let that be your number one pursuit. And then notice what he says in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. 
So the eye is the window to the body. And the amount of light that is let in is directly dependent on the quality of the window. These windows here let in a little bit of light, but they're, I don't know if they're tinted. It looks like they're frosted or maybe, um, what's the word, garbled? Something's going on there, so they don't let in a whole lot of light, but they let in some light. You can't look through them and see Kent or see anybody else in here, but it's letting some light in. The quality of the light is going to depend on how much is let in. So if it's got a shade on it, if it's frosted, if it's got curtains, uh, if, if, uh, if they're tinted, then obviously not as much light is going to be let in. Jesus says either the eye is healthy or the eye is evil. An evil eye is one that suffers with astigmatism. And that stigmatism being greed or covetousness or jealousy or envy, the evil eye sees things from a selfish perspective, while the single eye or the healthy eye lets in the proper amount of light. You remember Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and then he turned around and said that we as Christians are the light of the world. Obviously, when the light pierces our heart, we see the opportunity to store up treasures in heaven by being generous to those who are in need. We see more clearly because we see ourselves more clearly. That's one really good way to avoid making an idol out of your money or your possessions by giving them away. And Jesus is essentially saying, you've got to stay focused here. Don't let your vision be clouded. Kind of like the story of the man who was a multimillionaire and he blames his financial success on one moment in time when he went to church and he gave all that he had. He only had $100 to his name, and he took the risk. He said, I'm going to give it all to God. And he blames that moment on him being a multimillionaire. And one little lady leaned over and said, I dare you to do it again. <laughs> the Bible teaches that wealth is a subordinate good. God blesses you with money so that you can assist others. Giving in Scripture is always connected to the heart. So if you give grudgingly, if you're a hoarder, if you ignore the needs of others, or if you only give what you do not need, then you're investing in the earthly and not the heavenly. People are always more important than things, and money is a means by which we can help other people. But not only that, our money and our possessions are a means by which we can measure what truly matters in our lives. So the big question with the Sermon on the Mount that permeates everything that we read is, where is your treasure? And the second question directly related to it is, where is your heart or vice versa? Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? And when we get to talking about hearts and treasures, we also get into two other areas. We've already mentioned one, which is idolatry, and the second one is stewardship. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, this is what we read. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God has a management company, and its name is Mankind. We are a group of managers, an association of managers. You and I are tasked with protecting and expanding the assets of the owner. 
And as Genesis 1, 26 through 28 shows us, God has equipped us for this task. He never asks us to do something that he doesn't equip us to do. And he has equipped us with this task. He expects you and I to protect and expand what he started in the garden. Keep reading. Verse 29, then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every animal of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God was pleased with his creation. He said that it was good. Upon completion of it all, he says, it was very good. And that's what he expects us to do as his managers, to keep it good to keep making it good. He wants us to continue what he started. We often read, be fruitful and multiply, and assume that's just talking about having kids. And it does refer to that, but that's not the only thing it's talking about, and I'm sure you've noticed that as you read through these passages. It refers to unpacking potential that wasn't previously there. Unpacking potential that didn't previously exist. Listen to what's written in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 4. Blessed will be the children of your womb, the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your animals, the newborn of your herd, and the young of your flock. So children are a part of God's command to be fruitful and multiply, no doubt, but it's not all that is involved. Being fruitful involves what you do with the land, what you do with your animals, what you do with your stuff, what you do with his stuff, I should say. It's about unpacking potential that didn't previously exist. And then you skip over to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, and here's what you read. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat from it you will certainly die. So God tells Adam, I'm going to give you a home in my home. I want you to think of Adam as a ranch hand. He takes care of the ranch. Of course, he lives on the ranch, but he also tends to the duties that need to be taken care of on the ranch. And in essence, God tells him, Manage what I've given you. You're a manager, Adam. Manage what I've given you. That was his job, to protect and expand the assets of his owner. But if you know anything about owners and managers, you know that this relationship only works if the two of you are on the same page. The owner and the manager have to be on the same page. If they're not on the same page, then chaos ensues. The manager has to work within the confines that the owner has set forth for him. Now, the owner if he's a good owner, in my opinion, will not micromanage the manager, but he will give him the freedom to use his talents and abilities in the way that he sees fit. However, he still operates in the confines or the boundaries of the owner. The owner has set forth a prescribed way of doing things, and so the manager operates within those boundaries. If he doesn't, if the owner and the manager are never on the same page, then the owner is more than likely going to fire the manager or the manager is going to quit, but the two are going to part ways because ultimately the manager is not the owner, right? you got to get the relationship straight here. The manager is not the owner. The owner is the one in charge. The manager just does what the owner tells him to do. Sometimes management has to be let go. And God gave the management strict instructions about how he wanted his kingdom to be managed. And Adam and Eve made an executive decision That would cost them dearly. I told you that I used to be a manager of a grocery store, and 
in Paragould, Arkansas, all the way through college. Big star in, in Paragould, Arkansas. And uh, I can remember several times telling my boss, you know, I, I think this or I think that. And he goes, I don't pay you to think. You ever heard that? I don't pay you to think. In other words, you just do what I tell you to do. And I get it, right? So in this relationship, we're not owners. We are managers. We have to get that straight. The, the, the writer of Proverbs stated this way. He said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So, you're a manager. You lean on the owner because he's the one in charge. And then, if you look at Luke chapter 4, so Jesus is being tempted by Satan. After his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he's being tempted. And notice what it says in verses 5 and 6. And he led him, the devil, led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And notice this. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I want. Did you catch that? I will give you this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. Well, who handed it over to him? Well, Adam and Eve did, right? They gave him the task of managing it. They handed it over to him, and so that the world is under new management. And, and that is why you and I have so much chaos in this world. The earth is under new management, and the new manager doesn't care about you. He couldn't care less about you. And when management doesn't care about people, you know what happens? There's high anxiety, morale is low, and unfortunately, chaos ensues. But ownership is still intact. Make no mistake about it, ownership is still intact. God is still ruling and reigning. He is still in charge here, and he's looking for us to protect and expand his assets. But in order for that to happen, we've got to have the right relationship. We've got to understand what our role in all this is, because what happens all too often is that the biggest problem to asset management is many people think they're an owner when they're just a manager. You don't own anything. You and I are not owners. And we've got to get the relationship right so that we can be on the same page. We are managers. He is the owner. Like we talked about last week, we have one source. It's God. He is the only source. We are managers of our resources. You don't have anything that you didn't have to go somewhere else to get. You realize that, don't you? You have nothing that you didn't have to go somewhere else to get. You don't produce anything on your own. You're not, a, you're not a supplier. You're a manager. God claims comprehensive ownership of everything, and there are no other owners. Psalm 24 and 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who live in it. That's pretty self-explanatory, I would think. There is nothing in your life that you didn't have to go somewhere else to get it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, For who considers you as superior, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything you have is on loan from the owner. Psalm 115, May the Lord increase you, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of mankind. God has a management company, and it's called mankind. It's you. We are an association of managers that have been tasked with protecting and expanding the assets of our owner. 
You see, nothing in your hands is of your own making. Not your money, not your time, not your children, not your marriage, not your ability. So the person who says, well, this is my money, I worked hard for it. Who gave you the ability to work? You don't have anything that hasn't been given to you. Even your life is not yours. You were bought with a price, Paul says. We must think in terms of God's blessing power instead of our earning power. Instead of thinking of your earning power, think of God's blessing power. For the full expression of God to be working in your life, you must give up ownership. What happened when Adam opposed the owner? What happened when Adam and God were not on the same page? Well, work got harder. There was pain in childbirth. Their marriage suffered. Because that's what happens when you oppose the owner. Your whole world gets sent into chaos. It becomes broken. It begins to crumble. And too many people, too many Christians, in fact, can look like uh, the famous traitor Benedict Arnold. They want to say that they love God. They want to operate under new management. They say that they love God, but they continue to do the things of the new manager. And obviously, that's not the proper way to interact in this world. You have an owner, and we always acquiesce to the owner. Let him run your life as you take care of his business, and things will go smoother. It won't be perfect, but once we understand the relationship and get on the same page with the owner, we as managers find this life much easier to navigate. You know, when we first moved to Abilene, I guess 14 years ago, we bought a house on uh, Apple Blossom, which is in Pack Saddle, not far from the church building, three or four minutes away. And after a couple of years, we decided that uh, we wanted to sell our home and buy something a little larger. The problem was we, we didn't have another home to go to. We hadn't picked out anything yet, but we decided to go ahead and put our home on the market anyway. And lo and behold, it sold in four days. So now what? Where are we going to live? Well, we did the only thing that we knew to do. We rented for about a year till we could find what we thought we wanted. Renting is very different than owning. Some of you know this. When you rent a house, you let somebody else take care of the upkeep for the most part. And I got to tell you, as a renter, it was hard to mow the yard and to keep it looking nice and all because it wasn't mine. You know, you, you tend to take on an attitude if you're not careful of who cares, it's not my house. You have a property management company that takes care of all the upkeep, or virtually all the upkeep. One year, as we were renting this house in July, the AC went out. Guess who paid for the AC? Not me. I don't own the house. The property management company paid for the AC. Now, we eventually moved out of that rent home and bought a home in the neighborhood where we're at now, and owning is very different than renting. When you own a house, everything is up to you. You take care of everything. Because it belongs to you, well, it belongs to the bank, right? But it belongs to you. So if the AC goes out in the home you own, guess who's charged with the responsibility of paying for it? You are. There's a difference in owning and renting. There are responsibilities that come with ownership, and that is true in life as well. If you want to be the owner of your life, then go for it. I guarantee you it will always be in flux. 
If you want to be the owner of your life, you can do that. God has given you the freedom to do that, and it's always going to be broken, and it's always going to be in chaos, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. However, once you come to the realization that this is not yours, this is not your life, these are not your resources, they simply belong to God, and He has has blessed you with them so that you can use them for His glory, once you realize that, once you allow Him to fill the role of owner, and once you fulfill the role of faithful steward, you find that things seem to fall into place. When you realize that He has placed these things in your hands for you to manage, then you keep a looser grip on them. And they don't control your heart. They don't become an idol. They don't sit on the throne. God does. We said it last week. You have one source. Everything else is a resource. And the problem is that too many times we want to make the resource or resources the source. So God's the source. He's given you money. He's given you uh, time. He's given you uh, abilities, a career, whatever it may be. And we take those things and we allow them to overpower the source. So now that we idolize our money, our job, our ability, don't let the resource become the source. Put him first. Let him be the owner. And you as the manager be on the same page. And it tends to work. So, I don't have a clever joke or story to end with, but I do want to end with this. If you don't hear anything else from this morning, I want you to walk out with this on your heart and your mind, okay? Here it is. This is the thing I want you to remember. Let God be the owner of your heart so that you can be the best manager of his assets. Start there. Remember, the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount, at least one of the major themes is, where is your heart? Who has your heart? And the second question related to it is, where is your treasure? Let your treasure be God. Let it be the blesser instead of the blessings. Let him occupy your heart so that you can best manage his stuff. Jim's got a song for us. If we can help you this morning, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.